0: Poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness. Now nestled in the foothills of a mountain range, Greatness Village is the promised land the Chasing Poker Greatness community (laughs) calls home. Here, you'll find elite teachers, aspiring pros, and primitive tribal warriors who grew tired of their old ways and found a better path. These are the stories of Greatness Village on Chasing Poker Greatness.
1: Welcome. Welcome. Welcome, my friend, to another episode of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Coach Brad Wilson. Today's guest is a longtime villager, Craig Hanlon. Craig is a former lawyer. Craig is, you know, one of the hardest working folks in the village, in the Behind the scenes, private Slack channels, always studying the courses, always working hard, just doing his best to serve the community. So it's my great pleasure to welcome Craig on to Chasing Poker Greatness. Craig, how you doing, man?
2: Doing well today, Brad. Thank you, Coach, and uh, my humble pleasure to be here today. Yeah. So at
1: you know we we normally start this show out by asking about your story into the world of cards and you know, let's kind of go to the beginning, you know, how, how old were you when you started playing cards? What did that look like?
2: All right. Um, we'll start with the end. So I'm, I'm 42 today. Um, so that's where I'm at now. So my entry into the world of cards, like, like, like today, today is your birthday today. Oh, no, no, that would be cool. That'd be <laughs> really cool. if It was, uh, <laughs> um, so, you know, like many of us, um, it was my, my grandparents and, and my family that introduced me to cards. So um, I would say the first card game I began playing uh, was with my brother, who's two years older, and that was uh, the old classic war. You know, you get a deck of cards and each person gets half of it. And you just battle it out. And oftentimes that ended up in a physical war between, <laughs> you know, <laughs> two young boys. Um, you know, I was probably six, seven, eight years old or something like that. Um and, uh, but really the main, um, family member that brought me into cards was, was my nanny, my grandma, and my, my mom's side. We would, um, I, I grew up in New Jersey and, uh, grew up a, a Mets fan. So, uh, she was often over my grandma and grandpa was often over, you know, my mom was out work or or out at night or something and, uh, taking care of business. And we would, um, get a bowl of ice cream, turn on the Mets game and, uh, play a game of, of uh, Rummy five hundred. So that's how I first started playing cards. Was good old Rummy five hundred, and um, adding to that was my grandfather, um, who was uh, a bit of a gambler himself. Um, such that at the point when it was uh, his time to pass from from this world, he he went off in style in his casket with a, a pack of cigarettes, a bottle of scotch, and a deck of cards. Uh, <laughs> that's what we we sent him off with, and, and a smile. So um, he taught me um, five card draw. And uh, I don't know how he would fare in today's games, Uh, like probably tighter than old man coffee, because his standard was you don't play, you don't continue unless you got pocket jacks or better. So you don't even like if you don't have pocket jacks or better, you're done. You know, you just fold your hand. And uh, so that was uh, that's what I learned from him, a pretty tight conservative style when I first entered the world of cards.
1: I have no idea what five card draw strategy is. I have no idea if that's even tight. Like I I just don't know. It's like yeah. six-handed five card draw. Who knows? Is six handed is that even a thing? Are there enough cards in the deck to play six-handed five-card draw?
2: I don't know. <laughs> Maybe there is. Maybe it's like blackjack where they have multiple decks shuffled in one. Who knows? Oh you know, God. Back in days, um, those days what they were up to.
1: Yeah, so learning cards from your grandparents. And this is something I relate to because it's sort of the same same path for me. Just recently, I spent the night with my grandparents for the first time in a couple of years because of pandemic and all, all that jazz. But me and my grandma played rummy until 11.45 at night. And it was just great. It, it was, It just felt like I was a kid again. Like it was just a very... Valuable experience um, and something that, yeah, it means a lot to me. So, yeah, I, I understand the, how grandparents influence us and how just passing the time, you know, maybe life wouldn't have been that way if in the world that we live in today, right? There's so many different things that can hold kids' attention that we really didn't have growing up. You know, it's just like, hey, let's play a game. Like you, mm-hmm. you want to play some cards. Really? Um, But as you got older, you know, I know that you eventually went into law. So tell me about, you know, going to school, uh, becoming a lawyer. Why did that path resonate with you?
2: So um, I was in college and um, I majored in psychology. Um, I went to the University of uh, Delaware and getting close. So I was probably in my junior year, maybe summer before senior year. You know, I started to think like what am I going to do with this psychology degree and I, I kind of had this instinct that well i don't want to be you know having some person come into my office lay down a couch and tell me how you feel you know i, I just didn't see that as the way to go I spent a lot of time doing different um research labs with professors so um, i was really interested in interested in um, social psychology and like human behavior when we interact in groups and uh, you know I was wondering Miller maybe I should go back for a a master's and continue to work with these professors, but really that would just been kicking the can down the road because I wasn't really passionate about making that my career because I, I saw where that mostly led, which was um, in part something really enjoyable, you know, coming up and creating experiments to study human behavior and understand it better. Which I just I'm really passionate about that part about it, but you know, sitting around in an office and and uh, writing articles about the outcomes of that, I wasn't so much. Um, there was also the statistical part of it which i really enjoyed so it was a, a great combination of two of my uh, i guess educational passions of of math and psychology but i just didn't see anything happening there and uh, just kind of so happened so I, I made some friends right around that time in um i guess it was the beginning of my senior year and, and one of these like new friends i made she was talking about how she was on uh, going to law school and it was something that she had always planned on doing becoming a lawyer and so I started looking into law school and the idea of law school was what really attracted me. Um, the idea of more learning, more challenge. And I, I didn't have it in my gut at that point that I wanted to become a lawyer. I just developed this desire to go to law school and and the challenge. And, and in part, again, similarly, the idea was I don't really have this committed desire for a certain long-term profession at this point. Um, the other thing that was in my, um, you know, kind of Rolodex of options that ultimately boiled down to two options was go to law school and become a lawyer or go to culinary school and become a chef because cooking was something I was always passionate about since I was a kid. Uh, despite the fact that my my first experience in the kitchen was uh, was with making macaroni and cheese, you know, like the macaroni and cheese that we make like out of the box. And uh, somehow I messed up the step where you drain the macaroni. <laughs> before you put that like cheesy powder in there yeah so so i end up putting all the cheesy powder in and then i drain it and then i'm like it tastes like cheese <laughs> you know so uh um, despite that you know years later and, and lots of episodes on the food network i i really wanted to um to go to law school and i or i'm sorry culinary school and i had an uncle who had had been in in that um that field so um Ultimately, at the end of the day, I chose law school and that was the route that I went. Um, And, you know, again, primarily motivated by this, you know, desire for the challenge and the opportunity to learn and kind of kick the can down the road a little bit of making a decision of, you know, what I'm going to do because I didn't know what kind of law I wanted to practice at that point.
1: Yeah. So I see the ingredients sort of shaping up, right? Psychology, statistics, challenge. Um, It's pretty, pretty easy to see what that path eventually leads into and why, you know, poker resonates with you in the way that it does. But before we get there, let's talk about your path as a lawyer after college. Um, you were kicking the can down the road and eventually you get down the road with the can. So what happened <laughs> after that?
2: So um, I guess for now we're talking about finish um, law school and during law school i realized that I, I i did develop a really intense passion while in law school for wanting to be a litigator and this came in large part from a professor i had during my first year of law school and he described you know he was one of these begin with the end in mind type guys and he says okay like look you guys are all here it's like your first couple of weeks of law school you know before you got we, more
1: years. sorry sorry to interrupt but before you, you you move on like what's the difference between like a litigator other different types of practicing lawyers
2: okay so a litigator is one who primarily functions in a courtroom, um, and or, you know, uh, with cases that are going to be going to court, I'll compare that to a trend, what I'll say is a transactional attorney. So someone who deals with, let's say, business deals and buying and selling and mostly dealing with paperwork and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, whereas litigator is dealing with, you know, human clients, um, more face to face time in the courtroom, dealing with judges, you know, the procedure of the courtroom and all that kind of stuff. And and some of the stuff, you know, you see on TV, you know, that kind of thing, you know, dealing with a jury and whatnot. And um, so I developed a passion for that in part because of the way this professor presented it. And he said, you know, fast forward years from now, you finish law school and you've got a job. How do you want your night to go when you come home from work? And he's very dramatic. And he's standing up there in the front of the, the auditorium, you know, of the classroom. And he pretends like he swings open the door. Honey, I'm home. You know, great. Tell me about your day, honey. Oh, it was great. You know, we had this case and I had this witness on the stand. And, and you know, they said something. The judge pounded the gavel objection. And then, you know, the jury found in my client's favor. We won the case. And he was like all excited, you know. And, and he says, so that could be what your day is like if you become a litigator. And he, you know, kind of steps back and he comes forward or honey, I'm home. Great. Honey, tell me about your day. It was fantastic. I took this pile of papers and I moved it over here. I took this pile of papers. And I moved it over here. And I typed 72 words a minute for eight and a half hours. And now my fingers are going to fall off. Uh, it was like really easy for me to see, you know, where he was trying to steer us. And it was very obvious to me what I was more interested in in becoming a litigator. So, so that's what I sought to do. And, uh, coming out of law school, I started my career, um, uh, so I was working in New York for the New York City law Department, and uh, I was working in the family court, and our function was to prosecute juvenile delinquents, which really resonated for me because I myself um as a teenager, was a juvenile delinquent and uh, <laughs> you know had had gone down that path to some degree and uh, what you so do had,
1: what was your delinquency? what does that look like as a kid
2: um a, a little bit of everything um you know, a lot of like kind of getting in trouble with, uh, you know, like little drink in and smoking pot, and you know, cutting class, and uh, you know, the meet me after school behind the you know grocery store for a fight, you know, that kind of thing. And when you when you grow up in a small town like I did, um, you know, the the cops get to know who the troublemakers are pretty quickly. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I was I was in that group. And gotcha. um, yeah, so that that was I, I thought a really fun way both to. Pursue something I was passionate about, about being a litigator, and also kind of give back a little bit. You know, I kind of recognize where you know some of these. I thought I was going to recognize where you know these kids were coming from, but very different environment. I grew up in a you know small middle class suburb in in North Jersey, and I was working in uh, Brooklyn, uh, New York. You know, dealing with juvenile delinquents there. So very different you know demographic. Um, so that's how I get um, you know the can down the road and and start my career as a lawyer. And how'd that um, go?
1: Was it as fun punishing? juveniles as you thought it would be
2: it was it was awful it was absolutely terrible <laughs> um <laughs> I, I hated it from day two and uh, day, day one was you know fun and fresh and exciting but by the time day two it was terrible um so fortunately i was i was in a situation where um after two years you can ask for like a transfer to a different division so i was really fortunate um you know i, I did very well i was very good at what i did um and part of why i was good at what i did is i loved the preparation part. Um, why did you, you know, hate it? Um, you know what? What I really hated most was um, like the, the courtroom antics of the people that were involved. Uh, it just felt like um, just didn't feel professional. It just felt like kangaroo court. You know, it was like the term people would, would toss around like a kangaroo court. It's just like a, a big chaotic mess. People didn't take things seriously. You know, I, being someone who went through like this process as a juvenile delinquent, as a kid myself, and, and I see the way that people just had no concern. And, you know, these kids, they're, you know, young teenagers and whatnot, and, and their lives could be impacted by decisions we made. And and they were just kind of numbers, you know, like on a on a checklist, you know, did we do the right, you know, did we do this in court? And um, I just, it, it just didn't sit well with me. Um, there didn't really feel like any justice, you know, I'm, I'm young, fresh out of law school, fresh faced and baby skinned, and I want justice. And it, it wasn't happening. i can remember one particular episode so um i was doing a trial and um there was you know some like drugs involved and so the um the detective was on the stand and i'm asking questions and i you know peer over at the side you know through the kind of corner my eyes and based on where i was standing in the configuration of the courtroom and the judge's desk i can see the judge shopping for dresses online like while this is happening and you know this Kid is, you know, potentially going to go to some juvenile facility, and here's a detective, you know, New York City police detective, who's taken time out to come to this little courtroom, and you know, this judge's way of showing the respect for this whole procedure was to, you know, shop for dresses, and you know, the, the other attorney says objection, and there was a pause for several seconds while the the judge had to realize that the attention was on her, you know, so that was the kind of thing that just didn't didn't really sit well with me, and um, ultimately got got out of that mess. Gotcha.
1: All right, so. Two years, pass by, you get out. What's next?
2: What's next? Um, I'll just kind of jumble a whole bunch of stuff um, next because I, I, I took a, a path in my career and ended up doing a lot of different things. So I transferred divisions um, and I ended up working in um, what was then the kind of Navy SEALs of that particular office. Um, it was the Special Federal Litigation Division. And what we did is we defended... New York City agencies, particularly uh, police and um, corrections officers in civil rights lawsuits. Um, So most of my assignments were on the individual level of, you know, criminal gets arrested, charges excessive force, false arrest, that kind of thing, and we have to handle those. Uh, On a global scale, the division handled, um, you know, all the cases that stemmed out of the Republican National Convention that was um, held with George Bush in New York City at the time, and, you know, all the different um, kind of more, Bigger scale um, cases uh, was what our division handled as a whole. So it was a really interesting time. I really enjoyed my time there.
1: Bet they got uh, their ha- hands full. Um, they in did. Recent memory, uh, yeah. just a lot of yeah. Um, sorry, go on. <laughs> just I was just oh. thinking thinking out loud about like just all the all the things that have happened, you know, in recent memories. Just like yeah, that's got to be got to be quite quite the job
2: yeah yeah it was interesting and uh for me, so at this time um I'm in my mid twenties and it's probably um let's see i graduated law school what in um 2004 four started law school, which was uh downtown in manhattan in uh September of two thousand and one um uh, you know which was right around September eleventh happened a few weeks later um so i finished law school t- two thousand four my first couple of years when I was working at um as a prosecuting juvenile delinquents, is you know when the whole money maker boom um, had happened, and I was living in a in an apartment in Brooklyn with a couple of guys, and I wasn't really aware of this stuff at the time. They were the ones that you know introduced it to me, and so that's kind of when I got reintroduced to the the world of cards um after you know my my years of Rummy Five Hundred with Nanny back in the day. Yeah, yeah, uh, and, can, uh, and it was it was fun.
1: Can I go back for a moment because something piqued my curiosity when it comes to defending you know police for excessive force things of that nature do you get to choose the cases like what happens you know like if it's clear that excessive force was used i mean like how, how does that
2: work um so i didn't choose the cases that came to me they were assigned by you know whatever supervisors were above basically how it worked and again what i didn't really like about this particular uh, assignment uh, after a while was Uh, You get a case and and it it really is all about the money. Um, So a person is suing in order to obtain a sum of money. So if they claim that they excessive force was used on them, which not to belittle the legitimate claims, but often was, ouch, my wrist hurts after you put handcuffs on me because I was arrested for having been accused of some, you know, crime. And uh, we assess the likelihood of, um succeeding if the case were to go to trial. If there is a legitimate claim to begin with, we determine whether there's a way to dispose of that claim early through paperwork and you know motion settlement. work, settlement. Well, and, and so if not a way to dispose of the case otherwise, then we look towards settlement and assess what the value of the case would be. And so if the case is not disposed of otherwise, then we're gonna have to either go to trial or settle. And so what would be our exposure if we had to go to trial, not only in what we would pay out as I'm representing the city of New York at the time. So that's my client. I have to consider the taxpayers and the cost upon the city to pay out on this claim and the cost, in theory, of going that route and then come up with a number significantly less than that, but worthy for the plaintiff in order to accept to resolve it. And to simplify things, it you know, it was it became a game. You know, the, the attorneys that represented a lot of the people who came with these lawsuits were. Uh, the same attorneys over and over and over and over and over again. And, um, you know, a lot of them had these very um, awkward relationships with criminal enterprises, so to say. Um, and um, so yeah, it just felt gross.
1: What what you're saying is, like, there are people who specialize in representing folks who are suing the city or the state for, like, excessive force, for example.
2: Yeah. And, uh, you know, my job was, okay, you know, this guy gets $15,000, you know, this criminal gets $15,000 because, you know, he can show a bruise on his wrist, you know, from handcuffs. And, you know, this guy gets 20 and this guy gets 12 and this guy gets 17. And, you know, the attorney gets a third of that and the, you know, criminal gets two thirds of that. And, you know, just like after a while, it's just kind of gross. It's not what I envisioned um, I was going to be accomplishing as a lawyer. Yeah.
1: uh, Well, I mean, it, it makes sense, right? Like, just thinking about all the incentives in play and stuff i think that like it makes logical sense and yeah it feels feels a little gross just sort of all around feels a little gross um so what next what happened after <laughs> after you get tired of the the uh, elite unit navy seals after <laughs> juveniles so
2: a lot of things happen next uh, let's see so next i end up saying, okay, enough enough of this, um, you know, working um, for the government. And I went and worked in private practice, and I started out uh, doing employment law. And so I worked for, um, I got a job with with someone who had a small uh, practice through a friend. And um, now I'm kind of on, on the other side of the aisle, so to say. And so we would represent people who were claiming they were not properly paid their wages, um, either in The amount of wages or the overtime wages. Um, We also did a lot of work with labor unions and um, helping people who had some, um, so these would be individuals who worked for city agencies and they were part of a union and there was very structured process for being disciplined. If you did something wrong at work, you know, showing up late or a drug test that you failed or something. And um, our goal ultimately for those people was to save them their job and, you know, negotiate some resolution of punishment, suspension, loss in pay for some period of time in exchange for keeping their jobs so that they can continue to work and, you know, take care of their families. So, you know, now working more for, you know, the individual instead of, you know, for the you know corporation or the city. And I started to really like this better when, you know, you have more opportunities. Not every single case is, you know, pleasant, but, you know, more often you are working with an individual who has, you know, legitimate claims of having, you know, they're, they're hard workers. A lot of these cases arise of, of lack of proper wages for low income workers, um, you know, who are hardworking manual, manual laborers. Um, and, uh, you know, they might be working at gas stations or, you know, car wash or a waitress or something. And, um, you know, putting in 60 hours a week and getting paid as if they worked 40. Um, and so there's, there's a little bit more like, this is not fair and I want to help this person. Um, And it was also just the the way that the law was set up was was interesting to learn and navigate and apply, Uh, and you know I I started to feel like I was fighting for somebody's well being, and so that started to resonate with me a little more, and I enjoyed that a little better.
1: Nice, and so you're finally enjoying, (laughs) genuinely enjoying what you're doing. You mentioned that you fell back into poker. Um, so I'm sure that like poker is some part of your life at, at this, in this period of time, right? Like what was your, what was your personal life? Like, where was poker at? What was your ambition at this stage of the game?
2: So in the early stages of my career, poker is when I you know, kind of got into it, you know, right, post moneymaker and, and that was fun. Um, uh, I pretty quickly fell really in love with it. Um, I, I remember in fact, sometimes, you know, like I'd play a, like a $50 sit and go before work. You know, I'd show up at work and be like, oh, I just I just won 500 bucks this morning, like playing a sit and go. My friends are like, what the hell are you doing here? Like my colleagues, <laughs> like, you know, you're not going to make 500 bucks today. You know, and you got to deal with all this nonsense. And, you know, so that started to plant a little bit of a seed like hmm, is that. You know, is that what people do? They do that full time. Um, and uh, I remember playing. So at, at that time, I was more of a sit and go and small stakes tournament player. And, and I remember the uh, these are the early days. And Paradise Poker was a, a site that I played on quite a bit back in the day and played some tournaments um so that's where that was and i think party poker was there too um and so this is um i i don't recall so remind me like what was the year and the date of black friday
1: april fifteenth, 2011 11
2: okay so i'm i'm playing poker in the early 2000s 2004 5 six, seven, uh 8 and um So then you also ask like what was going on in my personal life? So simultaneous with all this stuff, my personal life was um, a train fastly derailing off the tracks. Um, And that's because I had a a serious problem with alcohol and drugs. And what is um, really, um, well, so and and part of this story is that relates to my juvenile delinquency. And so when I was 16 years old, I had gone to a long-term treatment center for nine months And, you know, came out, was sober and, you know, everything was great. Um, So I presented to the world and basically lived through my 20s as a fraud, pretending to be sober and uh, benefiting from the fruits of that. And so one way, one thing I I mean here is um, I grew up in New Jersey and I was working in New York and uh, during... (sighs) During law school, I got a internship with the United States Attorney's Office in New Jersey, and the person who was the U.S. attorney uh, for New Jersey then was Chris Christie, who then later became the governor of New Jersey. And so like through a connection, I got that position and then later was connected with him when he became the governor of New Jersey, because he was on the board of directors of this uh, treatment center I went to when I was a teenager. So we had this connection and, um, you know, he was really happy to, you know, kind of parade me around as someone who was, um, a juvenile drug user who cleaned himself up, went to law school, did very well, you know, um, like near the top third of my class. And I had an honors degree in college, you know, all these accolades, you couldn't see, you know, I I presented very well, um, you know, good job in the city, you know, moving up the ranks and, and all that kind of stuff. And so I would go out on speaking engagements, um, for him when he was the governor of New Jersey and uh, promoting his programs that would address um you know crime that was related to you know drug possession and drug use because he was focused on rehabilitation instead of punishment for those kinds of crimes and yet all the time um basically I was just living a lie and uh and and my personal life was a disaster and so this- how did
1: how did it feel going to give these speeches knowing that you know n- what you're about to say is just not true.
2: Pretty gross, pretty gross. Um, to the point that I, I needed to slash chose to like self-medicate that feeling away with drugs or alcohol, literally on my way to these events. Um, and I did a great job. I, I think I did a great job of like hiding it from everyone. Um, except for very few people who I shared and who would, would ask me that same question that, that you just asked. And, you know, today it's very easy and and doesn't cause any discomfort to answer this because I've done a lot of work here. But during that time, you know, some friends of mine would say, don't you feel like a two face, you know, like we just got high last week or something and you're going to go and talk and they would kind of laugh about it. And it, you know, I'd put on a face as if it, it didn't bother me like, oh, no big deal. But yeah, it really, you know, was a, a massive like internal dissonance that I, I struggled with. Um, you know, it's it's tough to to live uh, kind of a duplicitous life like that. You know, sooner or later, it's going to catch up to you, and and for me, it did.
1: Yeah, and tell me about like I guess your moral comp- compass, how you view integrity, because like all of these things are, as much as we want to believe that morality is like set in stone. Um, A lot of morality just is subjective based on your own principles and based on what your own beliefs are. So, you know, starting to drink when you're very young, um, going to the treatment center, like, I guess, were you violating your own integrity by doing this? Which, you know, some people, I, I guess it makes it, in my opinion, it would make it exponentially worse, you know, as you said, you were medicating on the way to giving the speech, which just makes me believe that like, you know, your code of integrity was being violated on a regular basis. And yeah, it's just kind of plain to see, given the benefit of hindsight, that things are going to, you know, reach a fiery conclusion at some point.
2: Yeah. I mean, there was a time where I, you know, like I'm I'm obviously aware of, problem that I have and, and just unable to do anything about it myself on my own I remember I went to go see a like a therapist and um she leans over into me one one session she says Craig you know you're a really intelligent person that's obvious and you know you seem to be pretty self aware of a lot of these things and so basically you understand like what's right and what's wrong and and like what the right thing is to do and she kind of leads in and and says yet yeah, you keep doing the wrong thing why and and like look and just kind of like piercing and and like I was so angry and insulted like that's why I'm here for you to tell me I don't know why I keep doing what's wrong when I know it's wrong when I'm doing it you know and uh, and that was you know the the great paradox of my life like how do I figure that out and how do I you know overcome that um so yeah it was it was really difficult um you know to to live that way for for too many years And, and yeah so it ultimately did you know Come to a fiery conclusion um fast forward you know several years uh to what you know became the end of my my career as an attorney so now after doing some employment law, I end up working in um the family and, and divorce area so I was uh representing a, a gentleman in a divorce case um and uh, so let me add this too so each of these stops along the road so the the, the city agency where I was working defending the police, you know, in the civil rights unit, my next job, you know, working for this guy in a small firm, they, they all ended with me getting fired um, because of my behavior, my choices, my attitude. Um, can towards you give, me an,
1: can you give me an example of like a fireable offense. <sighs> well,
2: um, well, so I, I can I give you an example.
1: Um, (laughs) Yeah, like, what's the reason why you got fired? I guess at the last one that leads you to the
2: um... the the last one that led me to. um, So the 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 third one was uh, I worked for a firm and was doing the divorce law, and um, I got fired from there. And then this client, you know, a lot of the clients that I represented there came with me, and I, I went out on my own. You know, I got fired from there because they just had enough of me of every day. Calling in late, calling in, not showing up, you know, kind of just essentially doing everything my own way and saying, screw you. Like they, they even so kindly brought me in one day and say, Craig, like, we're really concerned about you that you might be doing drugs or or having a problem. Like some of the staff here are saying that your attitude, you're starting to get really sharp and snippy with them and things like that. And I had this beautiful, I mean, I I was a, a litigator, so I could, you know, prepare and present a story and persuade you to believe it. That was my job. And I was pretty good at it. And I did that when I needed to, in order to save my own skin, not just to win a case for my clients. And so I, I did a great job. I had this story presented and I persuaded them it has nothing to do with that. Trust me. And here I've even got evidence that I prepared to show you that supports my theory. And um, yeah, so I, I was, I was kicked out of that job. Um, another job. It was just, you know, defiant, you know, not wanting to do what my, my boss had asked me to do because you know, I just didn't want to do it. And uh, you know, I, I had a, a problem with my ego. Um So so I end up on my own, um, you know, and and ironically, um, I I still was good enough as an attorney that all of these clients while working at this last firm that fired me, all the clients that I represented while working for this firm, they left the firm and came with me because, you know, they appreciated the quality of work and personal attention I gave them.
1: Do do you think there's any like self-sabotage involved there as it relates to like not showing up on time, being snippy with your coworkers, just, you know, It's quite clear that that sort of thing is not going to be sustainable in the long run if you keep taking those actions, right? Um, Do you think any of that was involved? Like, just, I don't know if I deserve to do this. I don't know. You know, I just feel bad about all the things. And so I'm just going to go off like a ticking time bomb.
2: Yeah. So, you know, I've wondered about that sometimes, given I, I always struggled with ability to say i need help and so perhaps all those some of those behaviors to some degree were my way of like passively asking for help because i couldn't otherwise bring myself to do it because to do so would suggest that i can't do this on my own and i got this was my motto you know like i got this don't tell me what to do i can take care of this so um yeah perhaps uh, but also it's just an overwhelming unmanageability of my own life, you know, and, and, uh, you know, kind of fast forward for a second. I, I got sober through a 12 step program and, um, you know, the early steps, you know, suggest you, you know, recognize that you were powerless over these substances and your life was unmanageable. And so, you know, all these behaviors at the time were just signs of my life being unmanageable, not being able to get myself to, to work on time, you know, those kind of things. Um, sure. You know,
0: Fish, dog bets the flop, and you don't know what to do. One man, Coach Brad
1: Wilson, has
0: a surefire plan to neutralize flop leads and rip that dunk to shreds. Nuffle. Available now. Go to slash Nuffle. Rated R. 100 NL player, former sergeant, Elijah Shears.
2: Before I got Nuffle, I had run into a lot of donk bets. And I think once you play a certain amount of hands, you know there's something wrong with our opponent's strategies, but you don't know how to play to maximize EV against it. And it's very frustrating. I looked at the document and I couldn't believe that I paid money for it. I actually doubted that it could provide value because it was so brief. But since then, it's repaid me just over and over and over again. And it's one of the most consistent moneymakers built into my strategy that sheds light on just how bad your opponents are. And it took me 20 minutes to perfect it, and it's just amazing. <laughs> yeah, I'm speechless. It's just that good. The simplicity of it is part of it being a masterpiece.
0: <laughs> of all. Go to slash courses.
1: And moving forward, you know, so you get fired, you start your own firm, you retain your clients because you're still good at your job. You're doing what you do. Um, yeah. What happens after that?
2: So well, ultimately I just, you know, things just are um, piling up, you know, prob- problems are piling up and I just can't solve them anymore on my own. And so ultimately the, you know, the, the straw that broke the camel's back was uh, a, particular case that I was working on representing the husband in a divorce and and the the parties had um, spent a lot of money in litigation. So they liquidated some assets to, you know, have some cash um, and put some extra of the proceeds into my escrow account, the purpose of which was to pay taxes on their withdrawal. And um, there was about $100,000 that was put into my escrow account. And um, over the course of the next year, I withdrew seventy-two plus thousand dollars of that, and uh, drank it, snorted it, paid my bills, um, just barely got through life um, with that until you know ultimately that caught up with me. That's not something you can you can hide from very long. Um, So, Do
1: do you remember the first time that you pulled money out of escrow? I
2: mean, I do. I remember it very clearly, and I can remember walking to the bank. And I can remember uh, what I did is I just, you know, the, the account was at the same bank that I had my business account, my personal account. So all I did was just transfer money from there to my business account and uh, from my business account to my personal and then just withdrew it. And I can remember like the panic I felt. Um, and I was living in in, uh, in New York at the time in, uh, in the city in, in Bronx. And uh, and I can remember the short walk back to my apartment, um, heart pounding. Um, looking down, like I couldn't walk any faster. Like I wanted to run. Uh, I, I just couldn't walk any faster, but I didn't want anybody in the neighborhood maybe to like see me looking suspicious and, you know, swirling around in my head were thoughts of, okay, it's going to be okay. Don't worry about this. It's going to be okay. I'm getting, get a new client. I'll get a new client and I'll get another retainer and I'll get another job. And then I'm going to pay it back. It's just, it's just temporary. Nobody's going to know about this. Get inside up the elevator, open my apartment straight to the freezer, open the bottle of vodka. <sighs> relief. Like that's, that's what it was. That was the experience. Um, I, like I can, I can see that image as if I'm both either standing outside of that person doing this or reliving it, you know? Um, it was just, it's so emotionally vivid for me and and something I, I need to go back to, um, you know, from time to time to remember what it was like, you know, to live that way. Um, and, um, so ultimately what happened was uh you know that's not something you can hide and and uh you know I get some detective cards slid underneath my door um you know do my best to avoid that for some time until I finally just break down and you know I called up some people I knew from years ago and then how how, how the
1: do community. you avoid avoid it like
2: uh, I just I just hid I just hid you know it, I I hid to the point where um you know my family couldn't get a hold of me for a couple of weeks my client couldn't get a hold of me for a couple of weeks um probably longer and so my family had filed a missing persons report. Uh, my client, wow. you know, was um, just like at wit's end, you know. So I, I just hid in my apartment and consumed whatever substance I could, you know, get my hand on with money I was continuing to steal. And um, it was a really just destructive life to live at the end there. And, and, it, and
1: it feels like as you were withdrawing the money, you kind of know, right, that this is like there's a this, this is a thing that. It's very easy for them to see what happened, and very easy for them to trace, and like you're just kind of
2: done, right? Yeah, and, and well, here's what I'll say about that. I I didn't accept that until the very end. I mean, you know, from seventy two thousand down to I don't know, like maybe at some point when there's like ten or fifteen, you know, um, the last ten or fifteen, I, I still was convincing myself because I was intoxicated in some way, shape, or form for. 95% of my waking moments, you know, and I just, I didn't, I didn't go to sleep, you know, like a normal human would for many months. I just crashed and then yeah. came to, you know, some point of some day and, and, uh, it was pretty, pretty sad, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly knew that the end was, was coming, um, when the end came. And, uh, you know, I remember for the first time in my life, you know, and I don't, um, I mean, I, I have a, a belief now of how that came to be, but I, I picked up the phone and I called somebody from from my past who's involved in the treatment community. And and I I said those words I'd never said before. I said, uh, you know, I need help. And, uh, you know, people in in this world are, you know, just so willing to be helpful. You know, somebody I hadn't spoken to in years, you know, who assumed I was doing well and successful and happy and healthy. You know, and I hear I call him on a Saturday, he's at a golf tournament or something. He answers the phone. Hey, Greg, good to hear from you. And, you know, I break down essentially in tears and, and tell him I need help. And, um you know that began the long road uh, to recovery right then.
1: Yeah. What happened to your career once the detectives got a hold of you?
2: Yeah, so once they got a hold of me that was uh, also kind of a, a interesting event. So, um I uh I left New York, went to came down to New Jersey so I can stay with family. My goal was to get myself into some kind of facility um and then go face the music, you know, with the detectives and, and at least have something to say guys look I uh, I surrender I did it but but please have mercy this is the reason why I'm getting some help now um not so fast Craig you don't get to do things your way um they uh they they tracked my phone you know going down to New Jersey and you know when I got to my family's house you know we had just enough time to eat dinner and then bang 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 you know and you you know when it's a police knocking at your door and not just the neighbor looking for some some milk or something <laughs> so um I you know they they took me away and I spent a couple of days in a local um jail holding and, and then went up to New York and, uh, you know, fortunately I was uh, released, you know, so altogether it was like nine days, but that's, you know, nine days living in, in a jail cell of some shape or form is, uh, you know, experience I'll certainly never forget.
1: Yeah. What, what were you thinking and feeling those nine days sort of in your middle purgatory, just like yeah. just waiting for the ax to kind of drop?
2: Yeah. Like, I mean, so many thoughts, how did I get here? You know, like, this is, this is not where my life was supposed to go, you know, like not, I mean, I had all this potential in the world, you know, from the time when I was a kid and, you know, always, um, you know, someone is at like the top of the class and I have an honors degree in a law school and I was a lawyer and this and that and this and that, and how did I end up here? Like, where did I go all wrong? And, you know, oh my gosh, like, is this like going to be the rest of my life? And, um, so, yeah, a lot and a lot of fear, you know, a lot of fear, a lot of anger, um all that kind of stuff swirling around. And um you know, fortunately, I was given uh, an opportunity. Um you know, because I'm not someone who had a, a criminal background, you know, and um you know, I guess because of the nature of the offense is not, you know, violent or anything, it was, you know, theft of, you know, of a, of a large amount of money um so I was given an opportunity um you know by the court system in New York as long as I you know kept my nose clean and and did what I was supposed to do and and uh you know continue to go to the, the facility I was going to for outpatient you know uh, counseling and stay clean and get a weekly drug test and and uh you know do that and after 2 years um you know it's not expunged uh, or wiped away clean but they took the felony reduced it to a misdemeanor and and um you know sentenced to time served essentially for those 9 days and um you know, so that actually just finished up, you know, that extra two years or that, that two years of probation, uh, concluded early this year. Um, you know, cause this is just a, a recent event, you know, all this kind of came, came to a head, uh, in about 2019.
1: So, yeah. What happened when your client found out about the money in escrow?
2: Yeah. So he was obviously, you know, devastated. I, I remember having one time answered the phone, you know, when I was still in this you know crazy place and um, you know, he, he was asking me questions like, you know, well, why don't you just like transfer it over to her attorney and we'll take it from here. And I did my best to kind of pretend I mean, he was, you know, we, we had developed a friendship during the course of my representation. And so I think he was, well, I, I later came to find out he was really hurt by that most. So, um, you know, he, he realized that the money was, was gone. And, um, so once I, you know, kind of went through my ordeal, um, and now I'm starting to, you know, get sober and, uh, you know, part of this 12 step process of, uh, of getting sober involves making amends, you know, to people that you've harmed. And obviously he's on the top of my list. And so I reached out to him and there's not much to say, you know, or do it's, you know, just to recognize in, in this particular instance for, for me and him, you know, take responsibility for what I did. And uh, more importantly, to ask the question of, look, you know, like I I stole your money and I understand how I um, treated you as your lawyer and I, you know, didn't do my job. And, um, you know, all I can say is I'm I'm gonna be, you know on a payment plan to pay you back and I'll take care of that in time. But, um, you know, I asked a question like, is there anything else? Is it like, in what other way may I have harmed you that I don't know? And he was very honest and, and he said, straightforward. He says, you know, money's one thing, but, you know, I considered you a friend you were my lawyer and during the time that i needed you most when the case was at its like crescendo you disappeared and you abandoned me and and you left me helpless and uh, and that's what really hurt the most and that that hurt me more than knowing that i had to pay back you know thirty five thousand dollars. you know i figured you know i can do something over the next you know several years and pay that back but how do i you know, earn that back and um you know what, what he said said next is really what changed for me, it like changed my life. It really helped me moving forward in sobriety. He had apparently done his work. He had done his homework on you know what it's like for someone who's an alcoholic or a drug addict going through twelve steps, and he had, he had seen a movie and understood the process of amends. Uh, but what he said next was, he said, "So you know, Craig, I just want to let you know, I forgive you." And I was like in tears immediately. I mean, I, I couldn't imagine. Like, here's a man that I stole from him, abandoned him. But like, what he just told me, and and he was willing to forgive, and that just showed me. You know, like the power of you know human relationships and, and being able to forgive somebody, um, and 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 then ask me for my help, and was still willing, you know, to have me help him in in what you know he was going through at, at, at the time, and um, you know since then, uh, you know, I consider him one of my best friends. Um, we stay close to this day. You know, I still help him in whatever he needs, and uh, you know, we stay in touch on a regular basis. And uh, like, I'm I'm truly grateful for his. Forgiveness and his willingness to, you know, uh, treat me like a human. He was one of the first ones that that showed me that I can still earn that back, and uh, you know, grateful for his friendship today.
1: Wow, that's a hell of a story. Um, yeah. A lot of just a that's a tough. lot to digest, and um, I, I'm guessing so 2019, all that stuff goes down um, when. You know, you're disbarred. So, right, so you're not a practicing
2: attorney. Yep.
1: What is that? What does disbarment
2: mean, actually? So it means that I don't uh, have a license to practice law anymore. Um, and and basically, what I understand going forward is, in like seven years from the time that you're disbarred, um, that like you know, you can go back and ask to be reinstated. Um, and I don't know whatever the criteria might be at the time. Um, But it's something that you can come back from, Uh, you know, there's a board that you would have to, you know, show why you're worthy of being reinstated of earning the public's trust again. I mean, that's the main thing. I mean, I violated, you know, the the duty of a lawyer to his client of being entrusted with funds is one of the most important, one of the most important, you know, functions in, in the, that trust of the relationship between lawyer, lawyer and client that I violated, and which demonstrates to the public that I'm not trustworthy. Um, as a lawyer, you know, in, in other respects. And so that's why you lose your ability to practice law because you've demonstrated and uh, shown that you're not trustworthy, you know, to hold that title um, and all of what it entails. So um, that's what I understand it to be. And, and uh, you know, so in five more years from now, um, you know, I'll have the opportunity to ask to be in re- reinstated. And I get that question a lot. And I my answer is, if that were an option today, And assuming I had known whatever the criteria were and believe I've established some track record of it, sure, I would apply to be reinstated um, only for the purpose of kind of maybe showing that I've, you know, made that progress and earned back trust with people um, through my actions over time, but I don't currently have a desire to practice law again. Um, So... You know, it's almost like a, a non-event, non-question for me. I mean, I answer the question that way because if if I were given the opportunity, I would I would apply for the reinstatement. But I currently don't have any desire or plans in the future to practice as a lawyer.
1: All right. So, you know, moving forward, these last couple of years, what have you been into? What's what has your life been like? Uh, and I know that poker will rear its head um, shortly in your story.
2: Yeah, yeah, poker reared its head uh beginning of this year in, in 2021. So, but from um April 21st, 2019, that's my sobriety date. Um, you know, most of my life has been focused in, in that area on um you know, a lot of self examination, a lot of uh work through the 12 steps and um, 12 step program I'm in, and um making sure I build a foundation now for my life going forward. Um and uh of what that entails um, not only just making amends to the people that i've harmed but then rebuilding relationships you know especially with family uh with friends with former colleagues and um you know most importantly with my son um i have a 10 year old son who is the most important person in in my life and most of what my life is geared to these days is being a good person so that you know it's kind of like my two favorite words so that so that i can be the best father that I can be. And, um, I have a great template in that my father, um, you know, and I've said to him a few times, if I can be half the father, my dad was to me, that would be twice the father I ever thought I could be. If that, I think that's how it makes sense to me. Um, so I, I have a really good template in, in how my dad was for me. And so that's what I, you know, focus on in terms of being a good father. So, um, you know, a lot of my life in the past couple of years has been, you know, just doing the work um in the 12 steps and, and getting sober. I'm a big fan of uh, philosophy as well and um you know, good character and acts for the common good, you know. Work on being a good person and work on doing good for others, you know, and uh, if I'm doing those two basic things, you know, um from the big picture, you know, I've had a good day, you know, life is good.
1: Uh, how do you how do you feel today? Compared to, say, five years ago, like just in your daily life as a human
2: being. The number one most important word that describes that is free. I am so free today. Um, For all those years, five years ago, 10 years ago, two and a half years ago, um, I was not free. And um, I was was sick spiritually is how I describe it. And all I ever really craved was freedom. And, and I sought freedom in different ways, in material and external ways. Um, and so I, I, I use some of the sayings from 12-step, from you know, kind of jargon to make it easy for people to understand. And one of these phrases is, um, you know, that we've recovered from this hopeless state of mind and body. And I was utterly hopeless for so many years. I had no hope that my life was ever going to get better or reach these levels that I previously thought I was going to reach when I was back in my teens and 20s. And, you know, the whole world was an oyster for Craig Hamlin. And, um, you know, that that clam shut up pretty fast. But uh, today I feel free. You know, life is is light. I have meaningful purpose today. I have long term meaningful goals to work towards. I have relationships that matter that I can contribute to. You know, I can wake up this morning and go to a 12-step meeting, raise my hand and share about my experience. And somebody can come up to me afterwards and say, wow, Craig, thanks for sharing. Like that really helped me. Like I, I've like today has already been a huge accomplishment just for that. And, uh, and that's, that's for me, that's freedom. You know, that's what it is.
1: And quite a, quite a bit of difference doing those things today than when you were doing them for Chris Christie back in the day,
2: you know? Yeah. Yeah. Totally fake. Totally phony. Um, I, 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 I did like it was. It was like I studied what to say and and try to figure out what was the right thing to say. I mean, I was just completely inauthentic. Um, and and maybe there was like stories mixed in that were true stories that contained some legitimate sharing of how I felt at times, but mostly the message I was sending was just whatever I thought was uh, I was supposed to say. Yeah. Yeah. Very different.
1: It's, um, you know, you can't really have courage unless you're vulnerable, right? And when you're doing what you do these days, there is vulnerability, right? There's a lot of vulnerability in this podcast that we're recording as we speak, um, which is courageous. But, you know, if you're not vulnerable, if you're inauthentic, you're not courageous, right? You're not, it just isn't going to um, light you up on the inside. Um, yep. so, let's segue now to you waltzing into greatness village uh how- yes. How did that come about so let's
2: see so that that came about because um I made a decision okay um starting this year, i'm gonna investigate whether I can play poker well, learn it, and ultimately make that a career because you know let's face the facts um my resume and record in walking into any kind of employer and whatever new endeavor I might choose because I'm not allowed to practice law uh, makes it very difficult for me to get a job. Um, I also, through a lot of self-examination, you know, came to uh, realize about myself, sure, during many of those years, I was a, quite a different person, but I didn't operate well in the nine to five punch a clock, do what my boss says, you know, fill out the checklist, sit in the cubicle. like that's not me. That's not who I really am. Um, freedom, flexibility, being my own boss. When I was my own boss as an attorney, I operated well. So I, I came to this conclusion that you know early in sobriety, I'm going to need to create a career or find a career where I can you know come and go as I please, so to say, and make some money. So one way I was I've been doing that to you know pay the bills on the side is uh, is Doordash. Big fan of being a Doordasher. Uh, in fact, at one of your podcasts with uh, Justin Saliba, I remember him talking about in his early days. You know, he was uh, at home grinding, and he'd go out and do Doordash a couple times a day to make some, some money on the side. And I heard that I said, yes, this is going to work. I can do this, you know, a little door dash income study and play the rest of the day. This is going to work, you know? So that was good. Um, So I got off track and my train of thought, where was I? Uh, Oh, how'd I get to the village? Yeah. So I decided that in early January this year is what I'm going to start to like look into. I was living and working at the time at a spiritual retreat center so I essentially like live on the grounds in a room and then have a, you know, like work on the grounds for a couple of days a week there. And, you know, so everything's paid for. And so in my spare time, I can, you know, study poker. And, you know, like many people, you start with the pokercoaching.com because that's heavy in the advertisements and the YouTube. And um, I, I started with 30 day cash game challenge and you were right off the bat, you know, the first one there. And I remember uh, it was early January. Then you had a like, I don't know if it was part of that or a separate one, the the enemy of execution webinar. Yeah, and I remember uh, being out for a run, it was January, it was cold on, and I was out for a run, I had my headphones on list too. And I said, this guy, like this guy, I just kept saying like this guy, because you were talking about personal growth and things that are not necessarily like poker concepts, but was like exactly like right up my alley. Like that's what I was into, you know? And so I said, okay, I got to find this guy. And so I, you know, find your podcast, start listening to it, uh, was completely seduced by the advertisement for Nuffle you know just like the way it's the way it's set up I mean like what a fish dunks the flop one man coach Brad Wilson I was like yeah I don't know what to do when this happens like I got to get that <laughs> so brilliant advertising with that course let me say and uh, that was people?
1: all Renee by the way I take no credit oh, it? like that was all Renee um, I I threw out a challenge in the village right before I went to sleep and I was like hey um, $100 CPG credit for whoever can like give me the best audio testimonial and like went to sleep, woke up, and that was there. And I was like, okay, I guess you win.
2: <laughs> is that Renee's voice? Um, it is.
1: It is. Yeah. Oh,
2: that's awesome. I'm, I'm so jealous because there was a time, um, when I was doing work as a, a lawyer that I, you know, was thinking, like, gee, I don't know if I'm going to do this forever. Like, what else could I do? And, uh, doing like voiceover work was something I always thought about. I mean, if I had a nickel for every time a client came in and said, Oh, do you do radio, man? You've got radio voice, and I've, I've always thought about doing voiceover. And when I heard the Nuffle like voiceover, I was like, "Man, that guy is good." I I wish I was like that guy. He's got a good voice. So, mm-hmm. shout out to Renee. Awesome. Uh, so yeah, so that's what originally got me, um, you know, to find you and and the podcast. And uh, it wasn't for a couple months, I don't think, until I came into Greatness Village. Maybe. You know, might've been like you had the, you know, I was like saving up money to buy nuffle, And then I saw something with the neural promotion for free and, you know, like get into Greatness Village, get the email. And so that's kind of how it started. And, um, you know, basically, I think by July, so I think July 1st is when I started with uh, boot camp. And uh, you know, I was just talking with one of the other guys with uh, with David from the Village that we have a study group now weekly last night. And, you know, when I look at my database from when I first started, you know, beginning of January until July, like. I don't know, barely a little bit above break even, you know, a couple of BBs per hundred. And from the day one of boot camp until now, you know, that graph looks totally different, you know, such an improved win rate, um, and just a totally different thought process of, you know, what poker is and how to approach the game and strategically and, and how much our mental game matters, all of these things um as a result of coming into the village. So
1: I you know, I never take credit, like absolute credit for these things, you know, you're exceptionally hard worker. Like you said, you study the material, you learn it. Um, Yeah. You, you just have done a lot of work and you know, that has translated into improving your poker game. And like really for the listener, immerse yourself into it and try hard, right? It's going to be hard. It is not easy. It is not an easy path, but when you, just invest yourself fully into the process inevitably you get better and that's just the way that it works there's no like quick and easy fix to being a profitable winning poker player it just it requires a lot of blood sweat and tears even when you have strats in front of you it still requires blood sweat and tears into Learning them, integrating them and then executing them in real time. you know, you, you mentioned the enemy of execution webinar that I did, and that was, you know it, it was about the emotional game of poker and how we are emotional creatures and how those emotions do manifest in our poker sessions, whether we want them to or don't want them to, they do manifest, they do influence us, um, so it's something to be aware of. So yeah man, it, it's it's been really great seeing your growth and the passion that you have for playing poker and improving. Um, You know, you mentioned David, you all throw up those private study sessions in the, uh, you know, fish in a barrel, feeding frenzy combo channel in bootcamp in Nuffle, like just everywhere. Y'all are getting after it. And I have no doubt, you know, David's going to be on the program um, within the next month or so. I, I just have no doubt that you guys keep putting in the work. That's, the results just come it's inevitable um, yeah. so you know you found your way into the village in July. everything kind of blends together for me by the way, like this whole last couple of years it's like just it, it all blends together um feels like you've been in okay. there, yeah, it feels like you've been in there longer than than five months, you know, maybe just because of how often
2: I see you um see you around. i might I might have started in like. You know, popping in there before that. But I like, I'm just, you know, July 1st is a kind of data or like a a point in time for me where things, you know, can visibly see improvement. But yeah, I think I was present in the village and, you know, chit chatting and, you know, a few months uh, prior to that probably because I, you know, I came upon that webinar in in January and, you know, probably was shortly after that I, you know, found the village. So
1: tell me, what does your goal look like now? Like, what is your ambition in the poker space moving forward from, you know, today into the future?
2: So my, uh, you know, I kind of got short, medium and long-term goals. You know, my short-term goals is to, you know, continue to improve because I have a ton of improvement um, to go and, uh, and make this my full-time profession, you know, my full-time income producing work. Um, And, you know, so that's, that's short-term goal um medium term goal is to you know use that and and uh, get more plugged in uh, into the poker community and learn more about um and learn from people who do mental game coaching um long term you know i i see myself perhaps playing professionally uh for maybe the next 10 years and then transferring or you know, just kind of transitioning, I guess, into more coaching. And um, who knows, maybe strategy might be the way I might uh, go. But if I had to decide at this point, which I'm kind of looking towards is more, you know, mental game coaching kind of thing, because, you know, another area that I thought about, uh, and I started to look into before I, you know, really put myself into poker time uh, wise, investment wise, was uh, perhaps, you know, going back to school and getting some kind of degree and becoming a counselor. And, uh, you know, the, the way I look at that, you know, I've been sober two and a half years, and so you know, I've, I'm I'm still building my foundation. And um, you know, as I'm sure you're aware, with with your business, like in order to really have a strong message that resonates with people, people are going to ask, well, who is this guy, and what credibility does he have, and what's his track record. And so I'm I'm a baby in this game. You know, I'm I'm brand new. You know, so uh, my short-term goal is to get better and and play and use this to produce income. You know, long medium-term get more involved in the community and long-term once I've built up a track record, you know, combining just with my uh, life experiences um, and my, I don't know, I, I've just always had a, a knack for, you know, i studied psychology and I've, you know, I, I like helping people navigate through life problems. And I think I have a better basis for doing that. And so, you know, that's what things look like for me um, cool, going man. forward in poker. Yeah,
1: it's uh it's a path that that makes a lot of sense to me and there is a lot of fulfillment and joy in giving back and helping people just in this world because there are lots of struggles even for the best of the best there are lots of mental emotional struggles Um, that this game causes because poker, poker is a brutal, brutal game sometimes. Um, And it can give us freedom, it can give us autonomy, but let's not understate the downside and how frustrating that can be and how it can kind of take over your life if you're not careful. And if you let your identity be just totally wrapped up in your day-to-day results in poker, like things just kind of go downhill. So yeah, there's a lot of joy in helping folks navigate through that um, in a healthy way without, you know, them spiraling, just melting down into a puddle of ooze. So yes, um, we're nearing, nearing the end of this episode. It's been, you know, a joy, pleasure, really just awesome getting to know you better. You know, I, I didn't know any of this story or I knew very little of it. We had a pre-conversation. So I knew some, but very little. Um, and it's just been yeah, it's just been great, man. And uh yeah, so any parting words before we we shut down this
2: episode? Thank you. Um, thank you for all you do for what you contribute to the village, uh, to the poker community. Uh I'm definitely humbled to be on here and, you know, slight preparation for, for this, you know, I'm, I'm listening to some of the other villager podcasts from guys that I uh, like look up to and respect both for their long-standing tenure in the community, what they contribute on a regular basis, their level of play um, you know, like guys like Danny and Darren, I was listening to their podcast the last few days, reached out to them and, uh, and here I am. And you know, it's almost like, wow, how how do I, you know, fit in here? So I'm I'm just really humbled to be able to uh to be here today and, and want to thank you for everything you do for all of us here.
1: It's my pleasure, man. And you earned it. And for the listener, greatnessvillage.com, wanna hop in all these villager episodes, all the stories that you hear, those folks live in Greatness Village. So wanna come hang out, interact, just opt into the email newsletter, follow the link, and you're there. And so now we're going to close down shop. Craig, again, great having you on. I look forward to having you on again in the future, six months, year down the road. Check in, see what's going on in your world.
2: Sounds like a plan to me. I'll be here. You know where to find me.
0: Thanks for listening to Chasing Poker Greatness. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com. To get the newsletter, join the Greatness Village community, book a coaching session, or dive into the latest data-driven poker courses. Follow the show on Twitter at CPG Podcast.